The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. What a, what a gift is your word to us. What a gift you've given us your spirit to open our eyes to see it, to see Jesus in it. And so, Lord, we're praying now again on this weekend where, we've cel- where we're celebrating 150 years of your faithfulness to this place. Lord, help me be faithful to your word. Help us as a people be faithful in the hearing and the obeying of your word. And would you transform us by your word, through the power of your spirit, to make much of Jesus? It's in his name we pray. Amen. So last Sunday, after church, late afternoon, I put on my purple shirt, my dancing shoes, and I danced on stage for a full auditorium. So it was basically a normal Sunday afternoon for me. <laughs> but, so, so what was going on? It was a dance recital. And in fact, several other Bethlehem South families were there as well. I saw Ted Sands there. I don't know if Ted's in the room right now, but I saw him afterwards, and I could tell he was pretty moved by my dancing. (laughs) So you could ask him more about it. Uh, So you should have two questions right now. One, why was I on a stage dancing in a dance recital? (laughs) And two, why am I telling you about it in a sermon? A better question. I can tell Pastor David is wondering. Let's get to the point. Um, And the answer to both of those questions is the same. My daughter, Iris, is precious to me. All my kids are. It's Father's Day, and one of the things I delight in most in life, just one of my greatest delights is being a dad. I love being a dad. But only Iris is responsible for my dancing career. So Iris is precious to me, and so when she asked me if I wanted to do daddy-daughter dance with her, My initial thought, honestly, was sure. I'm a pretty epic dancer in our family dance parties. But then I went to the first practice. And I realized that you actually have to do, like, real dance moves. (laughs) And you have to have, like, real solos and and parts in this thing. And there's a moment where all of the dads in this first class are looking at each other. And it's like, are we all in? (laughs) Are we really going to do this? And we were all in. Why was I all in? Because Iris is precious to me. That's really what it comes down to. Uh, this little girl has won my heart with her dancing she, till she was, since she was about two years old. She has always danced. When music comes on, she dances. And so the preciousness of my daughter had me do things last Sunday and throughout the year that I wouldn't have normally done without her. And what I want you to see this morning is that same heartbeat in the apostles as they're going out with the gospel. As we watch Paul and Barnabas pick up the pace in their traveling and their preaching, we'll also see at the same time the pace of persecution picks up. Stonings and beatings near the point of death. And so the question is, why does Paul keep preaching? Right? Why keep traveling? Why keep suffering? Because Jesus is precious to him. And I'm not just saying that. 
Here's what he says in Philippians 3, 7 to 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The preciousness of Christ made Him go to hard places, helped Him endure suffering, and lose all things because Jesus was precious to know Him and to make Him known. Whatever is most precious to us will dictate what we give our lives to. That's just how we work as human beings. The heartbeat of ascending, speaking, and the sustaining of the church, this church, every other church, last 150 years, next 150 years, will be the preciousness of Jesus. Is He precious to us? So let's dive in to this text and see how the preciousness of Christ sends these apostles. Point number one, preaching of Jesus and the poisoning of the Jews. You can find this in verses 1 to 7. So you'll remember that last week we ended the story with the Jews rejecting the gospel message of Christ's death and resurrection, the apostles being driven out of the city, and the last note we ended on, even with that persecution and rejection, was that the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How? Why? Joy in the midst of rejection and persecution. The Holy Spirit showing them the preciousness of Christ. So now they've traveled, and they're in Iconium, and they enter the synagogue. Notice that pattern. They enter the synagogue again like they did last week, and it says, they speak in such a way that many Jews and Greeks believed. We want that to keep happening in our day. The Holy Spirit would fill people and send people the preciousness of Christ, and we'd speak in such a way that many would believe. It's likely the same gospel message of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus and the need for them to repent and then enter into eternal joy. Probably similar to what was said in chapter 13 in the synagogue, so Luke doesn't feel the need here to to detail it for us. He would say, if you want to know what Paul said, go back to chapter 13. This is what he said as he entered the synagogues. In verse 2, Like we keep seeing over and over again in this book, unbelieving Jews stir up some Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the apostles. Notice in the book of Acts how the world is never content to see some people believe and then just agree to disagree. You go ahead and believe Jesus and we'll just disagree. But there's never any neutral in the reality of Jesus. You're either for Him or against Him. And notice that our minds matter in this war. The unbelieving Jews poison their minds. Kids, your parents probably want to talk to you all the time about what are you watching? What are you listening to? And what are you reading? Let's talk about that. Let's let's hear how you're processing that. Are they just uptight? (laughs) Are they just frustrating? Well, no, they know that your minds matter. They know your minds matter. They know that the world would love to poison you against Jesus and His goodness. They love you. They care about your your minds. They want your minds to be set on Jesus. And it's not just 
Kids, adults, are you careful that you don't give your minds mostly to things that passively or actively numb your affections and focus from Jesus? There's a million neutral things that you can give your time to that will numb your affections for Jesus. There's a, a million bad things out there, and we talk about those a lot, right? Like, obviously, pornography and sinful things, like, don't go there, but there's a million neutral things that you give your heart, you give your mind to, and just numbs your affections. But Paul says in Colossians 3, set your minds on things above where Christ is. Peter says, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is to come. We should be careful about what we put in our minds, setting them on Jesus. Well, in verses 3 to 7, it says, <laughs> the persecution comes, and what do they do? They stay a long time, <laughs> just like them, speaking boldly for Jesus and witnessing to the word of his grace. It says, the Lord grants signs and wonders to be done by them to confirm this gospel word. We'll see more of that in the next point. And as always, as they preach and the Lord performs His miracles to confirm His Word, the city is divided. No surprises there. We just keep seeing it. Some believe and repent. Others reject Him and are angry. And then it says an attempt is going to be made to mistreat them, and not just mistreat them, but stone them. And it's these people, these unbelieving Jews that have riled up the city and their leaders. So now the city-state is officially against them. They're now outlaws. And they learn of it, and they flee to Lystra and Derbe. And what, did it, what, did it, what do they do there? Verse 7, they preach the gospel. Guess we're done here. I guess we'll go here. And what do we do? The only thing we know to do, preach the gospel. So what's the takeaway from these seven verses for us today? Lean in to the preciousness of Christ. Would we be a people that prays, like prays all the time for the kind of preaching of the word of grace in this church and in our homes and in our neighborhoods, and all the way to the nations, that a great number would believe? Would we have an evangelistic kind of heart? Would we weep tears over our lost neighbors and over unengaged peoples who have never heard of Jesus? Would you pray for the faithfulness of of this pulpit and the faithfulness of your heart and your home and your neighborhood to make much of Jesus? And don't you want to hear, and many believed in the south suburbs. We don't care about the number of people in the seats. We care about the number of souls in eternity with Jesus. Would we keep checking our own hearts to make sure we're seeing the preciousness of Christ as our protection against the poisoning of the world? Paul says in Philippians 3 that the, the best way to protect ourselves from false arguments is to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, he says, to, to say the same things, no problem for me, and it's safe for you. Why is it safe? Because when you rejoice in the Lord, when He's your center, when He's your hope, nothing else is going to compare, nothing else is going to be tempting. Your mind will be stayed on Him. We should pray for signs and wonders that would confirm the power of Christ and confirm the power of the Gospel. That's the takeaway for us. We should be the church. (laughs) 
That's what this is over and over again in Acts. It's just being the church, speaking, sustained, spreading by the preciousness of Christ. Point number two in verses 8 to 20, the power of Jesus and the persuasion of the Jews. So Paul and Barnabas have just been run out of their second straight city. And at Lystra, they run into a man who had been crippled from birth, could not use his feet, and had never walked. And probably he was pretty prominently known in the community for that. Probably would have been a place where he stayed to to beg and to receive money from the community as they passed by. And says that he's listening to Paul preaching the word of grace. And Paul looks at him intently, verse 9, and he sees that he has faith to be made well. And as he sees that in verse 9, it says in verse 10, Paul tells him to stand up on his feet, and it says this man springs up and begins to walk. I love that it says springs up. Right? It wasn't one of those healings where it's like, yeah, my, my back's not quite as sore. Right? It doesn't hurt quite as bad. Thank you for the healing. Right? This guy springs up begins to walk. So here are the people who have seen this guy. Like he's never walked, never been able to use his feet. And Paul says, stand up, and he, he springs up. <laughs> he starts to walk around. This is a full healing in the name of Jesus. This is a confirming work for the word of grace from the king who brings that grace. Now, if you've been following along in Acts with us, this story should sound eerily familiar. Back in Acts chapter 3, Peter directed his gaze at a man who is described as lame from birth. And here Paul is the one looking intently at him. And when we went through chapter 3, I said a few things about this healing. So one of the ways that Luke works is when he explains something to you once, he's expecting you to be a good reader and go, and remember how I talked to you about it back then. So I don't got to tell you how Paul does things in the synagogue again in chapter 14. You just read that. Don't got to explain all the stuff in the healing here in chapter 14. I just told you about that in chapter 3. So what did he say about that? Well, in chapter 3, we said a couple things. In this intent look from Peter and Paul, they stop. They look. They see these people on the side. God is revealing somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit that he means to work for the glory of his name. God is working in this moment to confirm with Paul and Peter, I'm about to do something to confirm my word for the glory of my name. And then we saw in chapter 3 that the faith in these men, these lame men listening to the word being preached, the faith in these men to be healed is faith in the name of Jesus, but also faith given in that moment by Jesus himself. So faith in the name of Jesus, but also faith given by Jesus himself. In other words, this should not be seen as a text that teaches the concept that if you just had enough faith, you'd be healed. That'd be a poor way to read this, a poor way to teach it. This is a text that teaches the sovereignty of King Jesus to do whatever he pleases for the glory of his name and in his timing as he grants faith in the moment. That's what's being taught here. King Jesus is on the move by the power of the Holy Spirit through his disciples, and he will do what he pleases to confirm his word, to bring his name glory, and to spread the gospel wherever he pleases. So what does that mean for us here? What's the takeaway? Well, it means we should pray boldly and desperately for all sorts of miracles. There's no reason not to. 
We have a God who can do it, right? We have a God who created this whole thing. This is our Father's world, right? I've heard people say, pray prayers big enough for the God of Genesis 1, who created everything we see. There's no prayer too big. There's nothing He can't do. And it means we do that with open hands, knowing our Savior and King knows what's best for us, knows what's best for our church, knows what's best for our community, and knows what's best for the glory of His name, whether He heals by a miracle of grace from suffering or He sustains by a miracle of grace in suffering. Both of those are miracles. Right? In the, in the miracle of healing from suffering, from illness, from disease, we see the, the new heavens and new earth break in. <laughs> we see the, the glory of God. We, we praise Him. And in the miracle of sustaining and suffering, we see a picture of death and resurrection. Right? Death at work at us and life at work in us to sustain us, both leading us to praise His name. Pray desperately, pray open-handed. Well, the crowds see this miracle and they begin to say, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. They say this, it says in verse 11, in their own local language, so Paul and Barnabas, at least for a time, don't even know they're saying it, it seems like. They call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes. The priest of the temple of Zeus suddenly shows up with sacrifices and garlands to honor them in verse 12 to 13. And it's hard to blame them with what they just saw. If gods are among you, you better honor them. And in fact, some scholars will go back to a story connected to this very city where there was a legend that once the gods had come down and found no hospitality, and so they had destroyed the whole town except for one little place on the edge of town that had welcomed them. So it's kind of like an urban legend. So you can imagine with this urban legend perhaps in their mind, they're going, we're not messing up this time, right? Get the sacrifices, get the garlands, get everything. They're here again. Well, finally, Paul and Barnabas hear about it. Kids, you might remember when Caleb preached a few weeks ago and he talked about the bad guy, Herod. Right? He said, Herod's the bad guy in the story. One kid's nodding. That's great. You're following along with us. <laughs> remember, everyone was calling Herod a god. Do you remember that back in chapter 12? And remember how he liked that and was full of himself and didn't give God the true glory. And remember, Caleb told us God didn't let him get away with that. Right? God punished him. Well, Paul and Barnabas don't make that same mistake. They were supposed to see the contrast here. Chapter 12, Herod, self-worshipper, yes, call me God. Here, Paul and Barnabas, true God worshipers, don't do that. <laughs> right? It says they run out to stop the crowds from this false worship. They run out. This is a desperate situation. They tell them that they are only humans like them, not gods, that they bring good news, much better than Zeus or Hermes showing up in their camp. They have good news that they should turn from such empty gods and turn to the living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them. You see this contrast between Herod and the apostles. Now notice these people are likely Gentiles, not Jews. So this message is a little bit different. Paul is going to appeal to them to turn from their false religion of a pantheon of many gods and turn to the true and living God who is over all things. So what does he call them to do in verses 16 to 17? He says, See the goodness of God in His common grace. The goodness of the one true God. 
God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, but He didn't do it without a witness, is what Paul says. He did good to all people by giving them rains and fruitful seasons and food and gladness, which probably means wine, which is a sign of abundance throughout the Bible. Do you stop at every meal and every time it rains and fruitful seasons and say, glory to God. He keeps providing. He keeps sustaining. He created this whole thing and all we've done basically is sin against Him and yet the sun comes up in the morning. Right? And the the rains come. Finally, they're going to come today, I think. Do we see God like this? He's saying, God has been good to sustain you. This God is over all things. He created all. He sustains all. Now we know from verse 7 that Paul had likely made the case that this true and living God has sent His Son, the God-man Jesus Christ, to save them from their sins. And so the case here, these unbelieving Gentiles who would have believed in, in many gods over many different things, is that there's one God over all things who has been good in many ways, but ultimately in giving Jesus. That's the message. One God, not many. One way of salvation, not many ways of salvation. One hope, not many places of hope. You can have it now for eternity. You don't got to make sacrifices anymore and bring out the garlands for people who show up in your camp. Jesus has made a way for you to come into the presence of the one God now and forever. It's easy to look on this people in this text and maybe think them foolish or archaic for believing in all these gods in our modern age. Right? We think we can figure everything out. Right? We live in a culture that doesn't need gods anymore. doesn't ever look up, just looks in or looks at a, a screen. But we live in a world that is tempted to trust in all sorts of things. All sorts of various gods. Politicians, policies, cultural heroes, or whoever else to make the world right and good. We are tempted to trust in other things. In fact, wherever you feel most fearful or most frustrated, you can probably follow that emotion down to your heart and find something you're trusting in or hoping in instead of Jesus, something you're treasuring more than Jesus. Fearful? Follow that down. You're trusting something. Frustrated? Follow that down. Something's going on in here that you're hoping in more than Jesus. Well, Paul would tell us in the world and these Gentiles to turn from those lesser empty things and turn to the fullness of joy and salvation in Jesus for an unshakable hope in the one true God. You don't need all those gods. You have the one true God. Well, even with this speech, they, it says they're barely able to keep the crowd from offering sacrifices to them. So I don't know what that was like. Yeah, we hear you, but we still want to do it, just to be careful, <laughs> or something like that. But as we've seen in this story, uh, their praise switches quickly to persecution. So these Jews come, following them from city to city, and they persuade the crowds against them. So we've got, we've got to see this contrast. We talked about the preciousness of Christ. As the preciousness of Christ causes Paul and Barnabas to persevere for Christ, to see others saved, so the preciousness of the idols of these Jews the preciousness of these idols they love causes these Jews to stay hot on Paul's tracks to see him destroyed. What is precious to us will drive us. 
whether for good or for evil. And so the question this text is putting forward is, will the preciousness of our Savior make us relentless in prayer and proclamation, or will the preciousness of our sin make us relentless in pride and perversion? What is precious to us? What is driving us? Can you imagine just the, the, the hate, the idolatry in the heart that's making these people just travel all over the world of their day to just find this guy and put an end to him? These Jews probably, most commentators think, and I agree, probably appeal to the city that the apostles are blaspheming the God of Israel on the one hand and all their Greek gods on the other hand by their proclamation that Jesus is God, that he's King of kings and Lord of lords. And so they say he's, they're blaspheming all of them. They're blaspheming your gods. They're blaspheming our God. Let's join together and take care of this problem. This leads to them stoning Paul and dragging him out of the city. This kind of lends itself to the mob mentality. Normally you take him outside the city first for a few different reasons in Jewish custom and stone them there, but here they actually just stone them and they just drag him outside the city. They leave him there thinking he's dead. So they tried to stone him in the last city. Paul ran away, got away. Now they've caught up with him and they feel like they finally gotten the job done but as the disciples gather around him perhaps they're praying for him perhaps it's this morning we don't know Paul gets up and goes back into the city and the next day keeps going with Barnabas in verses 19 to 20 point number three perseverance in Jesus and the praise of Jesus well if I am Paul and Barnabas right now I think it is time to call it a journey and sneak back home. I think that's what I'd be doing. No one would blame a missionary for coming home for a furlough after what has just happened here. Paul's injuries, sometimes we just don't think about the reality, Paul's injuries are probably severe. He's got people following him around to hurt him. Like, Do you ever watch those movies where it's like this guy is holding this guy and they've just been attacked. This guy's like completely beat up, barely alive, and they're trying to get away from fully healthy bad guys. Right? And you're just like, there's no way. <laughs> there's no way it's going to happen. Well, that's what this picture is like. Paul's beat up and battered with people after him. Yet the preciousness of Christ drives him forward. In verse 21, they go to Derby, the next big city that's near Lystra. And what do they do there? Rest up, heal up, get a little R&R for goodness sakes. No, it says they preach the gospel. They make disciples. The preciousness of Christ is the engine of their lives. And after they do that, certainly now it's time to take the quickest way back home, right? No. I mean, as you read these accounts, they backtrack through all of the cities where they had already been on this journey all of the cities where their enemies are who had been hunting them and trying to stone them. That they go back to Lystra, back to Iconium, back to Antioch of Pisidia, doing what? Strengthening the souls of the disciples in Jesus. They just don't know what else to do. If you you read this story from a a strategic mindset, it's dumb. (laughs) This doesn't make any sense. But as they go back through these cities where all their enemies have been, they strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to endure in the faith and telling them 
from experience that we will have to walk the steps of suffering with Jesus in His kingdom. You can imagine uh, hearing that message from Paul would have been different from hearing it from me today. Right? I dressed nice today. I shaved this morning. I tried to look presentable. But imagine hearing with many afflictions we must enter the kingdom from Paul who's probably preaching to them with very obvious, visible reminders of the suffering he's endured. Right? He, he probably has scars and injuries and bruises. As I was studying this week, I learned that there's, there's a history uh, out there that describes Paul as regularly walking with a limp. You imagine him limping up to the, to the pulpit, beat up, bruised, scarred, and saying, He's worth it. He's worth it. Right? His, his scars, his injuries, his walking with a limp testifies to this. Jesus is precious. Jesus is worth it. This life is short. Eternity is long. It starts now. Nothing is up for grabs for those in Christ. Know Jesus. Make Him known. Endure, church. Don't be distracted by idols. Don't be deterred by those who don't believe. Don't be discouraged by suffering. Don't be disappointed by circumstances. Don't be disobedient to His call in your life to know Him and make Him known. Don't be doubtful that He's always working through His Word. You can do it, church. Right? I told you about Him when I came, and you see me, and I'm beat up, and I'm a living example that you can do it. You can walk with Him. He's worth it. I'm bearing in my body the afflictions of Christ. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ, meaning I'm taking this gospel with all the scars on the road of Christ and His suffering wherever I go to say He's worth it. Be strengthened. You can do this. Jesus is worth it. So we should ask, what's Paul's plan, which is obviously God's plan, for the perseverance of God's people in the midst of suffering? Like, what's God's blueprint for that? How are you going to make it? Because Paul's not showing up. Paul's not going to stand here. So how are we going to make it? Well, look at verse 23. It says, When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. God's plan for the perseverance of God's people in the midst of suffering and persecution and trial is the local church. I took that for granted when I was younger. America takes this for granted. The local church is God's plan for the perseverance of God's people. The local church with local imperfect leaders that think Jesus is precious and want to help a people see His preciousness speak His preciousness, be sustained by His preciousness, and send others to tell of the preciousness of Christ. The local church is God's idea for sustaining His people in the preciousness of Christ. Are you leaning in? Are you serving and being served? Are you speaking and being spoken to of the preciousness of Christ? We need every member. We are interdependent as members of the body. It's a two-way street and there's no spectators allowed. So ask yourself this week, just a really honest question. If God's plan for your perseverance and our perseverance in the midst of persecution and suffering and pain is the local church that speaks and is spoken to of the preciousness of Christ, what does that mean for your life? and your priorities, and your time, 
and your money and your mission. Not making it up. It's right there. That's what Paul did. You've got to endure. You've got to be strengthened. There's going to be a lot of afflictions, and I've got to go. But I'm leaving you with this local body of believers to lean in and love and endure and send and spread. And it worked. Here we are. Here we are. Application, the privilege of the church. Well, in verses 24 to 28, Paul and Barnabas travel back through Pisidia and Pamphylia and Perga and all the other places they've been through, and they keep speaking the word. Every time we see them, they're talking about the preciousness of Jesus. And eventually, to end this journey, they make it all the way back to home base to tell the believers they're all that God has done. That, that, this is the text, if you don't know, that our global outreach team is using for like our, our stories from the field, times that we have, and these videos. Is, but we want, we want our global partners to come back and say, hey, here's what God is doing. Right, here's an example of that in this text. He gets back to home base, which is Antioch in Syria. This is the place, you remember a few years ago, where I kept talking about this strange family that became a sending family, this family that had nothing else in common except for the preciousness of Jesus to them. And they get back to Antioch, where they had been commended to God's grace, and it says they report all that God had done with them. And how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And it is amazing to think about, in these missionary journeys in Acts, are the seeds that grew and eventually had the gospel come to these twin cities. So, on Tuesday, it will be 150 years that Bethlehem has existed. So I just want to read you this this excerpt that John Grano sent us an email, and I I don't remember where it's from exactly. But this excerpt of what that was like on June 22nd, 1871. It says, By God's grace, on June 22nd, 1871, the First Baptist Church of Minneapolis granted letters of transfer to 23 Swedish believers to form the First Swedish Baptist Church of Minneapolis. And on June 24th, 1871, those charter members met in First Baptist, forming a circle and joining hands as a sign of their fellowship in Jesus Christ. That's amazing. Isn't that amazing? So 150 years ago, a group of 23 believers already on mission, right, going, we've got to reach a different kind of people. We're going to be a Swedish church. A group of 23 believers gathered together and said, Jesus is precious to us. He's worth taking this risk. Our hope, our unity, our mission, our lives, and therefore this church will fellowship around the preciousness of Jesus, our fellowship in Jesus. And here we are 150 years later. That's insane. And it's even more insane in our modern age. Churches just don't make it that long. How many songs have been sung? Be interesting to calculate. Like I was thinking this week, how many songs have been sung in 150 years? How many sermons have been preached? How many hard times have been endured? How many missionaries have gone? How many people has God turned from death to life? How many churches have been planted? How many ministries have been started? How many times has this family wept with those who weep? and rejoiced with those who rejoice. 
How many believers have just been sustained to make it home with a limp to see Jesus? Look at all that God has done. What a privilege to be the church of Christ. My goodness. You see, as the, as the preciousness of something grows in our hearts, it doesn't just make you do and say things you normally wouldn't. Like when you say it that way, it almost sounds like a burden, doesn't it? Like, oh, I'm doing and saying things I wouldn't have. Right? Like it doesn't just make you do and say things you normally wouldn't, like dance on a stage because your daughter is precious to you, but it makes you realize the privilege of it all. Right, so very, very quickly after that initial all-in look that the dads gave each other, <laughs> very quickly after that, every rehearsal, every time listening to that song in the car, Smile, right, I can sing all of Smile for you for the rest of my life, all the way up to the moment in the recital where I lifted Iris high up in the air and my heart was exploding with the preciousness of my daughter. Right? Look at her. Everyone, she's precious to me. This is her. This is Iris. Right? I'll be asking her to do it next year. And oh, how much more precious Jesus is to us. He's our Savior. Your sins are really forgiven this morning because He's our Savior. He is our friend. He didn't just save us and then leave. He walks with us. He's our shepherd. He's leading us to green pastures and still waters. He's restoring our soul. He's with us in the valley of the shadow of death. In the presence of our enemy, He's uh, anointing our heads with oil and our cups are running over. He's pursuing us with goodness and mercy all the days of our life. Us, who don't deserve any of it. He's our Lord. We have the privilege of walking in obedience to Him. He's our leader. He leads us in paths of righteousness. He's our life. He's everything. We have nothing apart from Him, but in Him we have life. He's our joy. In our best moments, where is there more joy than in being forgiven, rescued, ransomed, adopted, Him dwelling in us until we dwell with Him? Eternal joy, pleasures forevermore coming. He is our King. Who else do you want to bow to? It's just, isn't it just a great thing to just bow to Jesus? Like, have you experienced that freedom with those things in your life that you've been holding on to angrily, frustratedly, and then you just say, no, I'm just going to bow here. It's called freedom. He's our rest. It's our place of rest. You weary, heavy laden, he says, come, find rest for your souls. He's our hope. And not like I hope it rains or I hope it gets cooler. Like a sure hope. Resurrection hope. He's our sustainer. Never leave us or forsake us. Power made perfect in our weakness. Be with us to the end of the age. Does your heart explode with the preciousness of Jesus? Does your heart just go, Do you see Him? Do you see my Savior? Do you see Him? Do you see all that He is, all that He's done, all that He promises to do? You can have Him! Oh, how precious is His salvation. 
How precious is His Holy Spirit He sent to keep working and teaching through us. How precious is His providence to sustain this place for 150 years. The church worldwide and this church is and will be sustained and speak and send because of the preciousness of Jesus. We see Him, we savor Him, we spread Him because He's precious. And notice how in the account of the apostles to Antioch, it all happens because God was with them. Let us tell you all that God did with us. His presence empowers their preaching. His presence empowers their perseverance. Jesus is precious and His presence is their power. The Holy Spirit keeps the preciousness of Jesus on their minds and on their lips. So I've been praying this week as I've been preparing for another 150 years of the presence of God to work in and through us. That is a massive prayer that only the God of Genesis 1 can answer. I am praying that we would really, like really, like that I would really, in my heart, down to my bones, count all else as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus and that the preciousness of Christ and the presence of Christ would sustain our souls and send us to our neighborhoods and to the nations as our hearts explode with praise of His preciousness. What a privilege to be the church of Christ, to see and to savor and to spread the preciousness of Jesus who has saved us. I'm just going to give you a couple minutes right now to just go to the Lord uh, with your burdens. We're going to take communion in a couple minutes. But would you ask Him in this moment uh, to make Himself precious to you? To make Himself so precious that your heart would explode in such a way that the things of this world would grow strangely dim and He would grow bright and you would have to tell other people about Him and abandon your sin. So I'll give you a couple minutes and I'll come back up. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Five five four one five. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.